The Kentucky Derby took two minutes to run and 20 minutes to figure out. We'll talk about that and whether a second straight Triple Crown is on the horizon in the form of Country House. We'll also talk with another Derby winner, a Derby that takes 10 days to complete. You heard right, 10 days. Oh, and this Derby winner was only 19 years old at the time and had no formal training to run the race. Other than that, she was all set. It's all about two very different kind of derbies on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gate. They're about to move in. They roll out. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch, it's a hip-hopping finish! This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In the Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In the Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Tim Tullock, racing analyst at Laurel and Pimlico, will stop by a little later to review that wild Kentucky Derby and look ahead to the Preakness. But first, we have a different kind of Derby to tell you about. It's the Mongolian Derby. Yes, we said Mongolian Derby. It takes place in, you guessed it, Mongolia, between Russia and China. So you might be asking, where is there a racetrack in Mongolia? Well, you're not approaching this right. This derby is not run at a track. The track is the wild landscape of the country. The Mongolian Derby is a 620-mile endurance race, a 1,000 kilometers. It's designed to recreate the Pony Express mail system set up by the Mongolian ruler Genghis Khan in the 13th century. This derby takes anywhere between 6 and 10 days to finish. This coming August will be the 10th anniversary of the Mongolian Derby, It was started in 2009 by a British-based company. But we want to talk about the 2013 edition of the race, the fifth annual event. Just a few weeks before, a 19-year-old girl named Lara Pryor Palmer was cruising the Internet from her home in the United Kingdom and came across the Mongolian Derby, with zero training and some but not enough money to pay even the entry fee. Miss Pryor Palmer hit the Apply button, and voila, entered the race. Most competitors train for years in order to endure the fatigue and hunger and horsemanship necessary to get through the race. What happened after that internet search is a testament to the human spirit, a true tale Miss Pryor Palmer spins in the new book, Rough Magic, which comes out right about now. And we're very pleased to have Lara Pryor Palmer with us to discuss her story here on In the Gate. You didn't even have the money for the entry fee. So what happened when you told your parents that you were doing this? Uh, I definitely didn't tell them together. I think my mom <laughs> is like quite enticed by horses no matter where they are in the world and was taken with the romanticism of it as I was. I think my, my father's difficult to gauge. He's not doesn't angle himself into reality in the same way, so he sort of thought it was really dangerous and said it was too opportunistic to do it at the last minute as I was going to. And he sort of just didn't imagine that was the way I should be spending my summer. I think he had ideas. 
probably more related to how he imagined his children should be spending their summer. I'm not even going to go there. But <laughs> what was your goal going in to win, to have a spiritual experience, to find yourself? <laughs> I definitely didn't have a goal. I was there whimsical teenager who was really excited to raise money for charities i thought it was great because in the uk lots of people do marathon running and i thought the mongol derby was quite unusual and that it would be a good thing to raise for greenhouse sports who do fantastic work through sport in london with kids from disadvantaged communities so that was definitely a goal and then the other goal was just to finish the race i guess apart from doing it and getting the experience at least for one day before I dropped out, if I did. Because no one my age or under the age of 23, I think, could yet finish the race. You will get to the human suffering in, in a second. But before we go any further, I think we need to clarify a couple of things. First of all, it's not one horse that takes you through this race. It's around 25 horses. How do the horses that you're not riding travel with you through the race? Oh, great question. Yeah, so it's an endurance race for humans, not for horses. So in Mongolia, there's a lot a lot of horses and many families on the steppe have varying amounts of numbers of horses. They're a status symbol, as they are in many, many worlds. <laughs> and so in the summer, the organizers travel around Mongolia asking families if they'd like to act as a horse station for the race. And the families will then get together 35 or 40 horses and those are stations are placed at sort of 25-mile intervals. So you ride for three or four hours between each station, and you stop and you give in your tired horse and wait for its heart rate to come level. And then you look at the line of sort of 20 horses on it, or depending on how many have run away in the storm the night before, maybe three. And then you decide you're an ex-horse and you ride on. So you don't even know these horses until you literally hop aboard and get going. Exactly. Because even in polo, for example, where a number of horses are on a team with a competitor, they're property of the competitor. He knows all those horses or she knows all those horses. This is not that. Oh, my gosh. How different are Mongolian horses from horses we're used to seeing here in the West and not just thoroughbreds, I mean? Huh. Hard to say because, you know, like lots of British horses are vaguely similar to Mongolian horses. There's no sort of like east-west divide, really. But so, for example, I'd ridden some some small Arab ponies, and a friend in the states actually had some Icelandic ponies, which are not dissimilar from Mongolian ponies, and that they have a large head size and they're quite stocky, and actually genetically they qualify as horses, even though they're sort of with a height, they're pony ponies. They'd be under fourteen too. And the way they differed is the way of going in that they're very, very rarely ridden, the ones that I rode. You, know, you can't get together 1,500 horses for a race and make sure they're all properly trained. So lots of them are semi-wild and they'll have been backed, but often <laughs> you don't quite understand steering, which is lucky because you quite often just go in a vaguely straight line. And they bark quite a lot when you got on them. They were cold backed and that often the ones that bucked that hard were the the best bolters and they would gallop for for a good hour before they were out of steam so you had to sort of take that risk so you're traveling like 600 miles with horses that are bucking on you 
uh, yeah, they don't bark the whole way. They're back at the beginning and maybe, you know, a little, little more if they're feeling cheeky. Some of them don't. They're all right. I mean, within Mongolia, the horses are so different. Some families had very, very nice donkeys, sort of type horses, and other families had sort of brilliant racing champions who were like almost not horses. They were like lions. Do you try to talk to them, chirp to them, calm them down? Yeah, you can talk. I mean, that's another thing. So in the Mongolian language, you would say different words for whoa and different words for sort of giddy up is more like a sound. And yeah, you can talk to them as much as you like. I sang to them quite a lot. I told them about my frustration quite a lot. I mean, they're your only, if you're riding alone, which some people don't, some people do, they're your only companion and you've got to make friends with them no matter what their athletic ability is. Well, speaking of the other people, I mean, I imagine that most of the other competitors kind of know who each other is somewhat. Then you show up for official testing out of practically nowhere. What was that like? It was very global. Many of the riders did not know each other and lots of anonymous people. But it was there was a sense of people trying to make partnerships because we were all afraid to ride alone. And I never really got around to doing this or like fostering enough of a serious bond with anyone that they would want to ride with me. I mean, we were only on the testing days for two days or something. It was tense, but I slightly ignored it. I was sort of like high on the excitement of this new group of people and, you know, fresh out of school had left. Not a sheltered life, but quite a particular life. And I was just, you know, I think I was too excited by the whole gang to notice how terrified I was. Well, did you get any vibe that they were saying, oh, wait, te- what, teenage girl, what is she doing here? <laughs> no, it wasn't quite like that because there were some other young competitors. So we were all friendly with each other. There was a sense of surprise that I wasn't so prepared for the race and a sort of desire from some older people to help me out a little. How many competitors are there in this race? It varies. Some years there's about 50, and other years, my year there are only 32. So we're talking about 13, 14 hours of riding a day, right? I mean, what were the conditions like? Conditions as in the weather? Well, the weather was very entertaining we had storms followed by heat waves followed by floods where you can't cross the land because it's all bog trap so you weren't comfortable and you probably had no change of clothes if you weren't very good at packing like me and you're probably quite sore because there's no way of training for this race there is no setup like it in the world so no matter how much you've ridden thoroughbreds around the track or trained polo ponies no one's really done this for 14 hours a day. And it's, it's a total shock on the body. And you get off the horse and you just want to fall asleep. We'll chat about a much more familiar derby, the Kentucky Derby, in just a moment. But we continue a little bit longer here on In the Gate with Lara Pryor-Palmer, author of the new book, Rough Magic. So take us a little bit inside that exhaustion and hunger you just mentioned. Mm. Well, your body feels like a weeping willow tree. And yet you're somehow getting stronger underneath it all. And by the seventh day of racing, you think, actually, I quite like this way of life, being a message in my body and I, acting as an animal. And I could do it forever because the pain of being so raw and tired and wanting your basic bed felt to me 
more natural than any of the like civilizational educational privileges that I'd had so it was a sort of funny realization and that the hunger is sort of you can't do anything about it sometimes you get somewhere early enough that they'll feed you and that you just feel very grateful other times you've got nothing to eat and you're too tired to worry about it anyway and your headaches oh my gosh and you've said that even though the goal was to finish the course as fast as possible that life really slowed down for you during the race what does that mean there was a sense of uh, some something in my brain, at least some scientists would have a name for it, had come so alive, my memory, I can still recall every minute of that race, whereas I you know, have no idea what I did yesterday or indeed last year in November. So it was almost meditative, the experience of relentless, repetitive, trotting rhythm, cantering rhythm, walking rhythm all day long. Uh, that you you were in a different brain state, a different consciousness. I mean, not all the time, right? There's always that Lara being competitive, quite wanting to beat the leader kind of thing going on that I remembered at stations. But in between the stations and at night, yeah, you felt like you were beyond the catch of the normal net. Now, talking about that whole leader thing, in the book you helped to streamline the focus somewhat by locking on to one specific competitor, another female, Devin Horn, who's only a year older than you. She was 20 at the time. What made you lock in on her? <laughs> um, I, I think growing up I'd always had this idea of humility and modesty. It's probably actually quite neurotic in the end, but I held very tight to it. And to see someone like Devon be so convinced of the fact that she was going to win, according to her interviewers, and to have looked someone who asked if they could ride with her up and down and said to them, if you can keep up. There were just a lot of moments of seriousness with her. And I, I sort of wanted to inject some humor into it, but you can't do that. So I just decided that. I'm going to win instead. <laughs> I didn't decide that at start camp. I said, I hope someone does. But then I sort of found myself in sixth position within sights, and it felt natural to aim for that. Now, if you're not familiar with Laura Pryor Palmer's story that she details in Rough Magic, we don't want to ruin the ending for you. So let's just ask what you learned about yourself by completing the Mongolian Derby. Hmm, that's a good question. I think that question's difficult for me to answer because I learned a lot about myself by writing about the race and how I was in that 10 days was like a microcosm of how I am in my whole life. Sort of slapdash, throwing myself into things without being fully centered about it and like being very willing to ignore the risks and the dangers, but also like with no real reason or need to do so. and 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 that i think the mongol derby is an example when it it sort of pulled itself off there have been plenty of other examples where it's just been troublesome so it wasn't necessarily what i learned about myself more that i realized that there were certain environments that would let my spirit out and certain environments in which i would ignore my spirit i think we are all in this modern well, not necessarily. We are all, I think many of us are experts at forgetting our spirit. So the race certainly brought that out. Have you spent the years since then, this race was nearly six years ago, 
searching for ways to find that again? Mm, yeah, the next race. That's a good question. You know, I said there's a paragraph in the book where I say, you know, doing something that people think is dangerous, like the race, is easy for me. And more ordinary humdrum things like having a relationship over a few years or, you know, having a settled place to live or holding down a job for a long time very hard for me so that wouldn't be the race so that's something that I haven't done properly I don't know I've fallen in love with writing so I don't think that urge is ever gonna dissipate and I have this sort of race with myself and I have all these things I want to write down and express all the sort of spaces in between that we ignore the book is called Rough Magic, Riding the World's Loneliest Horse Race. It comes out right about now. Lara Pryor Palmer, thank you so much for sharing your amazing story with us. Thank you, Barry. It's been great to speak with you. We are going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, people are still talking about the crazy finish to the Kentucky Derby. So we might as well do the same thing. Maryland racing analyst Tim Tulloch will weigh in and look ahead to the Preakness when we come back. Kentucky Derby and Code of Honor has slipped through down inside to challenge for the lead. Country House on the outside battles on two. War of Will is also there. And down toward the inside, Maximum Security is boxing on two. Improbable down the center of the track. There's one furlong to go. It's Maximum Security digging down deep. Country House continues to close on the outside. But Maximum Security at the peak of perfection in the Kentucky Derby. Wins by two. Country House was second. Code of Honor was there in the photo for third with Tessitus. There's been a disqualification. Number seven. Maximum Security disqualified from first. For interference, the new order of finish, number 20, Country House first, number 13, Code of Honor second, number 8, Tacitus third, number 5, and probable fourth. Once again, number 7, Maximum Security disqualified. Well, 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 it was the great actor Tom Hanks playing Forrest Gump, who of course famously said, life's like a box of chocolates, you never know what you're going to get. And I don't think any of us expected we were going to get what we got. Certainly not Tim Tulloch, the racing analyst at Maryland and Pimlico, who now has to pick up the next chapter of this mess in two weeks at the Preakness. So Tim, we bring you in for the first time. It's great to have you here on In the Gate. What were your thoughts about the Kentucky Derby? Uh, look, it was an exciting, exciting race, no question about that. The best horse won the race, no question about that. Uh, but there's there's rules in, in place to protect horses and riders, and no one wants to see a derby winner come down. But to me, it was a clear disqualification. I thought the stewards did a great job in taking their time. They don't want to take the derby winner down. Nobody wants to see the derby winner uh, come down. Bill Mott doesn't want to win the derby that way. But as Bill Mott said early, he said, look, if this was a maiden 25 on a Thursday afternoon, this horse comes down now, and he was absolutely right. You know, it wasn't the horse's fault, but, you know, those rules exist for a reason. I don't know how much you know about this, but there are two basically different sets of criteria for how to judge that kind of thing. 
one that most of the world uses and one that North America uses, and they are different. And in North America, the criteria is any change in the race order as a result of the bumping. In the rest of the world, it's would the horse offended have finished ahead of the horse that committed the offense? And if the answer is no, then you leave it alone. Why are there two different sets of ways to interpret the rule? Well, and I also think there's two separate ways the, the rules interpreted from state to state. Now, I know in Maryland that if you interfere with another horse, you, you're basically taken down no matter how, what the result would have been. And there's other jurisdictions where there's some subjectivity where, okay, that horse wasn't going to win the race anyway, so we're going to leave it alone. I can't speak for those specific rules in Kentucky, but if it's the former, then that horse, you know, certainly should have come down. Oh, please tell me this isn't going to happen again at the Preakness in Maryland. Who thought we'd be going down this rabbit hole? Yeah, we've already been down that rabbit hole. If you remember Codex and Genuine Risk uh, back in 1980, you know, Genuine Risk jockey claimed foul against Codex jockey uh, Angel Cordero, and, and they left it up. There was really no, he just took the horse wide. There was no actual real contact. It went all the way to the racing commission before it was, absolutely decided that there was no reason for a disqualification. So we've been down this road before. This isn't new. Now, Country House obviously will be the focus going forward with a chance to win the Triple Crown. Let's judge him a little bit. He obviously was a pretty much afterthought coming into the Kentucky Derby. Did the mud really make the difference here? Was it the trip that put him a little bit more forwardly placed than he normally was that made the difference? And how does that translate to his chance to win the Preakness? Well, I think the mud made a difference for for everybody, including Maxim Security. He'd already run over one over and off track. He likes being out there in front. And we all know that when you're in front on a sloppy track, just like last year, Justify, and this year with Maxim Security, you can carry your speed a little bit farther. So if that racetrack was fast, does maximum security keep carrying his speed? Does Country House uh, nail him, you know, within the 16th of the wire? So I think the the off track was certainly a factor for both of those horses. It, I think it helped maximum security. Uh, Country House, you know, I, I don't know if it helped or hurt him either way. But by looking at Lucky, looking at Lucky, he ran over an off track. Okay, also. So we'll uh, see how it goes. Tim Tullock, the racing analyst at Laurel and Pimlico, who will be front and center at the Preakness, joins us here on In the Gate. So horses typically don't run every two weeks anymore, the way they did 30 years ago. And so not that many of these derby horses will be moving on to the Preakness. You're going to have a bunch of new names in there on the Triple Crown Trail, potentially Laughing Fox for Steve Asmussen, Signal Man for Ken McPeak, Swainio for Keith DeSormo and, and others. How do you size up the field that Country House could potentially face? Well, I think it's going to be a pretty nice field. You've got some horses that are coming in awesome win streaks, like Always Mining for Kelly Rubley, another twist of fate, and uh, there will be some fresh horses. But I think it's going to shape up to be a pretty nice field. We're looking at the seven or eight right now as we speak that are pretty committed or pretty sure they're coming. So, you know, I think it's uh, going to be a, a pretty good field, and hopefully we can get good weather for the Preakness this year and not have yet another sloppy triple crown race 
to deal with on a sloppy track. But, uh, you know, it's not tougher horses to do it. It's just something people don't do as often anymore as they used to, as you alluded to. You know, horses don't typically come back on that that little bit of rest. But that's what makes the Triple Crown the Triple Crown. That's why it's so difficult to win. You've got to be able to do that. And if you can't do that, you're not going to win the Triple Crown. And that's what makes it the hardest thing to win in sports. And that's what gives it its unique character. And, and I love it about it. I don't want to make it easier. You can e- either do it or you can't. And if you can't, you don't get it. End of story. Always Mining comes in off a six-race winning streak dating back to last October, including the Federico Tessio last month. And, you know, we'll be stepping up in class, but certainly you have to take him seriously. And another twist of fate, who was on the Derby point list, but decided not even to bother and to just train the horse into the Preakness, had been running in California on synthetic dirt, came to the East Coast, ran second in the Lexington on conventional dirt. I think you have to take him a little seriously, too. How do you size them up? Oh, I, always mining. I mean, his confidence is as high as it, as it can be. He broke his maiden last May or June June here at Lowell Park, and and uh, I remember saying, wow, that, that's a nice horse. And then he went awry. Things went bad for him for a few races. Kelly Rubley took over the training they tried him on turf one time. That didn't quite work. They put him back on the dirt where he really wanted to be, and he's just gone forward and forward and forward and gotten better and better and better. And, yes, he's going to be taking a step up in the Preakness. However, I'd love to bring a horse in to the Preakness on that big of a winning streak with his confidence high coming off races where he won, got a lot out of, but didn't take a lot out of him. So a fresh horse coming in, and he will be very, very fresh when he rolls into Timoco Racecourse in a couple weeks. And maybe we'll actually be able to see the horses run down the back stretch this time, which we couldn't last year. (laughs) (laughs) That was bizarre. Tim Tullock, thank you so much for a few minutes here. We look forward to a dry preakness. Let's all pray for that. Uh, Absolutely. It, It can't be any wetter than last year, or maybe it could, but we hope it's not. Our thanks once again to Tim Tullock and to Lara Pryor-Palmer. I know that referees in stick and ball sports do not speak to those of us who chronicle the news. So it really was no surprise that the Churchill Downs race stewards took no questions on their disqualification views. I'd love to see here in the States what I saw at Royal Ascot two years ago when our friends at ITV took you into the stewards' room to hear them interview the riders, a view American race fans deserve to see. The stick and ball sports soon may face a similar crossroads since the average Joe can now bet legally. It's not just grown-ups playing kids' games, it's potentially defrauding the public, and so comes the need for accountability. This sport already needed to become much more transparent since it's been in the news in an unbecoming light. A Q&A with more media than covers this sport otherwise would in the big picture have been a welcome sight. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.